any time we can gather to hear the Lord's word is a special time as we exalt our God by setting forth his word. This morning, though, of course, we have a special blessing set before us because we get to remember today the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship today the Son of the living God, the living Messiah, who after ransoming himself set to um, pay the penalty for our transgressions, he freed us from slavery, and he did so powerfully and visibly. By his death, Christ satisfied the greatest judgment of God, and by his resurrection, Christ supplanted the greatest weapon of Satan. And so this morning, then, we look upon the greatness of Christ. Therefore, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, None Greater, God's Provision for Man's Poverty. And although our text this morning, the focus text, is Romans 8.32, for the sake of context, we need to read some of the surrounding verses. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 22, and as always, ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. And know that this passage will be a little bit longer than usual. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that it is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And he does so with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? 
as it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You may be seated. Paul Harvey tells the story of a nine-year-old boy More specifically, of a nine-year-old boy who was in a Sunday school class of eight-year-olds. He begins the story by noting that the eight-year-olds can indeed be cruel. And in this group of third graders, they would not welcome Philip into their group. Not merely because he was one year older, but because he was different. Philip suffered from Down syndrome. And he had the obvious manifestations that come with that. The facial characteristics, the slow responses, and symptoms of retardation. One Sunday, the Sunday school teacher gathered some plastic eggs and giving one to each child, she instructed them to look outside for a symbol of new life and then place that inside the egg. The following week, they would regather and then open each egg so that each child could then explain what the symbol was that they placed in their egg. When they came together again, indeed, the children gathered around, and they put their eggs on the table, and then the teacher began to open each one. The first revealed a flower, and of course the children oohed and awed. The second one revealed a butterfly to the delight of the children. The next was something different. It was a rock. And while everyone laughed and questioned how that was supposed to represent new life, a child spoke up and said, that one is mine. And I knew everybody would pick something like a leaf or a flower. And so I wanted to be different. And then finally they arrived to the last rock and the teacher opened it. There was nothing inside. The children had plenty of opinions about that. Some said, that's not fair. Others said, that's stupid. And that's when Philip tugged at the shirt of his teacher. And then he said, it's mine. I did do the assignment. It's empty. I have new life because the tomb is empty. And at that, the class fell silent. And from that day forward, Philip was indeed part of their group. He was welcomed despite his differences, and they were never mentioned again. Philip's family had known that he wouldn't live long. There were too many things wrong with his tiny little body, and indeed that summer, because of an infection, Philip died. And so on the day of his funeral, nine eight-year-olds, along with their teacher, gathered and, and walked up to the casket. And with their Sunday school, each of them placed on that casket an empty egg. The story of Easter is not just a story for Easter. The day of celebrating Christ's resurrection is not for one day only. When we gather each Lord's Day, we do so to remember the resurrection of Christ. 
When we gathered last week, we did so because of the resurrection of Christ. When we gather next year, we will do so because of the resurrection of Christ. Even next week, we will gather because of the resurrection of Christ. And if the Lord indeed does not return in 10 years from now, we will do the same. In fact, the daily walk of a Christian is defined by his willingness to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The Christian's daily walk is defined by his willingness to remember the death and resurrection of Christ. Your fidelity to your spouse is defined by your willingness to remember the death and resurrection Your function in the church is defined by your willingness to remember the death and resurrection. Your friendship with others is defined by your willingness to remember the death and resurrection. And your faithfulness to God is defined by your willingness to remember the death and resurrection. Not today only, but every day. The death and resurrection of Christ has not only altered the permanence of death, it has altered the pertinence of life. No more do we define physical life by our impending death. Now we define this physical life by our imminent eternal life. Because Christ lives eternally, those who live in Christ also live eternally. Therefore, it is a good thing when we remember the Lord's day, not just today, but every day. And as the story of Philip has shown, the Lord has given us many reminders of this new life. The creation speaks of God's gift of life. The culture reminds us of man's need for new life. And the cross calls attention to Christ's work for eternal life. And therefore we look on our text in Romans 8.32 this morning to remember the significance of what we celebrate at Easter Already throughout the book of Romans, Paul has established the fallenness of humanity. He wastes no time. He starts immediately in chapter 1 and says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. By the time we get to Romans 3.23, he says it more plainly, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But only a verse later does he speak of God's gracious gift of Christ, saying, They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then through chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, Paul covers all of this more explicitly. And he sets forth a clear picture of what I would call man's poverty. Indeed, man is impoverished. He's living in a continual state of debt and depletion. And yet in those same chapters, 4, 5, 6, and 7 of Romans, Paul sets up this great contrast, placing before readers not only their state of poverty, but also the splendor of God's provision. And so I want you to note first, indeed, the poverty of man. Romans 8.32 reads, He, God, 
who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Until we apprehend the need of man, we will never appreciate the gift of God. If we are ever to stand before our Lord and Savior and say, Thank you, Lord. We must first begin on our knees with the words, I am not worthy, Lord. Therefore, we come to our text and we look upon this act of God, seeing that indeed he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Implied by the text here is that there was a reason for God to give up his son in the first place. Our Lord, who lacks nothing in power, he lacks not in knowledge, he engages with this creation instead with complete wisdom. And therefore, everything he does is done with a purpose. He will never undertake an act needlessly, but rather God is calculated so that he achieves the maximum effect with the most minimum of effort. Nothing is wasted. And so we can confidently say that our God would never surrender his son on the cross if it were not necessary for his sovereign plan. And so as a result, we come to a text like Romans 8.32, reading, he did not spare his own son. And we must ask, why is it necessary for the Lord to even sacrifice his son? To begin with, the answer to that question is found in the form of three letters, S-I-N. We don't say it quietly, sin. We don't whisper it as though it's barely audible, as if it's something we don't have to contend with. We say it loudly. Why did Christ have to come to die? Because of sin. For your sin, for my sin, for the sin of my children, and for the sin of the parents of my children, for the sin of my grandchildren, for the sin of my grandparents. This one little word, these three little letters, they transformed all of creation. It altered all of history. And at the same time, it has reshaped your life and mine. It does not take somebody with a bunch of head knowledge to see the effects of sin. We need only to look upon the world before us and see the shattered lives, the destroyed relationships, and the demolition of society to see the effects of sin. Before us lay these disfigured pieces of God's perfect creation, each broken by the assault of the bullets of sin. To quote Herman Bavinck, Sin ruined the entire creation, converting its righteousness into guilt, its holiness into impurity, its glory into shame, its blessedness into misery, its harmony into disorder, and its light into darkness. There is no creation in sin, only annihilation. Sin seeks to eradicate life and cause the extinction of man. It's not even necessary, though, for us to look upon the destruction of society to see the effects of sin. Instead, we only need to look at the destruction of ourselves. 
Paul writes that God gave up his son for us all. In this context, as Paul writes to the Roman believers, he is saying that God gave up his son for us, for you and I, for believers. This is not a universalist passage saying that all are universally saved by Christ's work. Earlier I read to you from Romans 3, 23 through 25 to show that salvation from sin only occurs by individual faith. But in that passage, the Apostle Paul writes that everyone indeed is a sinner. And yet, it is only those who have faithfully trusted in Christ's sacrifice that will be saved. This is worth pointing out, though, because it draws our attention to the far-reaching effects of sin. There is not one person uninfluenced by sin. There is not one person in this room who can claim that they have no need for Christ's sacrifice. Our impure thoughts remind us of the effects of sins in our own lives. Our selfish motives draw attention to our inability to remain free from sin. With every foul word, we testify to the need for the cross. With every judgmental criticism, we place Christ on the cross. And with every self-centered action, we proclaim all the more, I need Christ most of all. If we look upon Romans 8.32 with any sense of clarity and conviction, then we must begin not by being appreciative to God for the giving of his son, but instead first by being appalled that God should have to give his son in the first place. The truth of this verse calls us to detest sin, not by despising it in others, but by loathing it in ourselves. You must remember the words of Thomas Brooks when he said, There is not a worse nature in hell than that that is in you, and it would discover itself accordingly if the Lord did not restrain it. Only when we are overwhelmed with our own guilt can we be overwhelmed by God's grace? And so I want you to know the second part, the provision of God. The text says, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. It was Thomas Watson who said, The more bitterness we taste sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. Like Watson suggests then, we move from the bitterness of sin to the sweetness of Christ. That is, we go from an explanation of man's poverty to an exaltation of God's provision. I want you to notice two things about this provision. First, I want you to see the totality of that provision. To the Corinthians, it, is, it was said, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In man's impoverished state, there is no greater need than a provision to pay off the debt of sin. And this verse, this 2 Corinthians 5.21 that I just read to you, points us to that truth, that indeed Christ was that propitiation for our sin. He was the provision 
In fact, our text in Romans 8.32 says that not only was it Christ, but that he was God's very own son. And God did not spare him for our sakes, but rather gave him up for us. The wording of this text harkens back to Genesis 22, taking us to a well-known story in the course of scripture, one that is often repeated time and time again. It is here in, in Genesis 22 that we find God speaking with Abraham. And in the Lord's normal clarity of speaking, the Lord speaks plainly to Abraham and gives him a set of instructions. In verse 2, he says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And we know that it came about this way that Abraham rose up early the next day, it says, and he followed the Lord's instruction. And he took Isaac with him, and when they arrived to the appointed place, Abraham began to build the altar. Of course, Isaac, seeing no sacrifice, then begins to question Abraham and, and, and ask, where is the lamb for the birth offering? And Abraham replies in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. As the story goes on, Abraham then begins to bind Isaac and lay him on the altar. It's at this point that most people begin to ask, what would you do? If you were in Abraham's position, would you have enough faith to sacrifice your child for the Lord? But you and I are not Abraham. You and I are Isaac who because of our sin, the only recourse we have is to have our life taken from us. And so we need the intervention of God to keep us from death, just as he intervened for Isaac. And that's what happens here in verse 11 and 12. God intervenes at that last moment, saving Isaac and then providing a ram for sacrifice. And then in language similar to Romans 8.32, twice, God says to Abraham, once in verse 12, but also in verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. The picture of sacrifice prefigures the sacrifice that would come with Christ. However, there is one striking difference between the event with Abraham and Isaac and the event with Christ on the cross. God didn't intervene. God did not stop that event. In fact, quite the contrary. Our text in Romans 8.32 suggests that God willfully gave Christ over. <clears throat> Four chapters earlier in Romans 4.25, Paul describes Jesus as our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Octavius Winslow asks, who delivered Jesus to be crucified? Judas handed Jesus over to the priest from greed for silver. The priest handed him over to Pilate from envy. And Pilate handed him over to soldiers because of cowardly concern for his career. But Winslow notes, it was not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. 
Out of love, God gave his own son. God the Father has many children by adoption, but he only has one son by naturalization. His own son. That wording implies that the two of them had a unique relationship, suggesting that there is no one else with whom God has this type of relationship with. John 8.29 says that all that Christ did was pleasing to God. Nobody has ever been so pleasing to the Lord as his own son, Jesus Christ. And so by giving his son, God gives the greatest gift he has. God who can do all things, who can give all things. To him, this is the greatest offer. This is the greatest thing that he can give. And so that's what he does. He gives his only son. And what a great cost that was for God the Father. I want you to think about then the brutality of that provision. It says that God did not spare his own son. John Piper notes that the word not spare implies an obstacle of difficulty for God. Indeed, God can do all things. He can do whatever he wants. But he must have loved his son so much that the thought of subjecting Christ to all that he would endure on the cross must have abhorred God. We find the most descriptive language of this provision in Isaiah 53. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was not despised, and we esteemed him not. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. goes on to say, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Offspring, he shall prolong the days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Like William Hendrickson says, God did not mitigate the severity of the sentence in any way. What Christ bears is the full wrath that was meant for you and I. When we over, are overcome by the poverty of man, we can be overcome by the provision of God. And that brings us to our final point. Here we see, or I want you to note last, the provision of God for the poverty of man. Romans 8.32 ends with a rhetorical question. How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Following Paul's logic, we look at the text and we can see that if God has given us all that there is to give... He has not withheld anything, but instead given the greatest thing he has to offer, his son, then surely he will give believers all things. 
In commenting on this verse, John Murray writes, Here is adduced the most conclusive proof of God's grace. By this statement, we see the grace of God fully and completely exemplified. By this phrase, graciously give, Paul doesn't use a typical word noted for giving of something. This word means extravagance or lavishly, as in God has given lavishly on his people, and he's done so by giving Christ. To the Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed with every spiritual blessing. Again, when God gives, nothing lacks. He holds nothing back, but he gives in abundance. Those who may doubt that God has given abundantly, all you need to do is look upon the remaining text of Romans chapter 8. Those next verses outline exactly what the Lord has given and how he has given excessively. And so quickly, I just want you to notice three outcomes of God's provision for man's poverty. Notice first the justification of Christ in verse 33. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Declared guilty for our sins, Christ has paid the price. So that no longer are we declared guilty. But God, in his perfect judgment, has looked upon us, or now can look upon us, and say, not guilty. Debt paid in full. By the work of Christ, then God has provided for our justification, so that we no longer live in anticipation of death, but we live in anticipation of eternal life. But the Lord's abundance gifts do not stop there. Verse 34 tells us, Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so here we have the intercession of Christ. Part of Christ's ongoing work after his resurrection is the work of intercession. Left in sin, this seems to tell us we would not even be able to adequately pray for ourselves. And yet the Lord's provision is to provide his son, who would go on to pray for us. And because he is God, Jesus prays with the fullness of his deity, which we've been talking about from Colossians the last several weeks. And so because he prays with the fullness of his deity, what we see is that he prays with absolute knowledge. He not only knows our situation, but he knows our internal circumstances. He knows our heart and the state of our heart. And so he can pray precisely. More importantly, Jesus' wisdom. And so when he prays, he, he does not pray for what you and I want. He prays for what we need, even if we don't know we need it. And so he prays wisely. And then consider that Christ is absolutely powerful, omnipotent. Christ possesses all the power of God because he is God. And so when he prays, he has the ability to fulfill those prayers. And thus he prays powerfully. Finally, verses 35 through 39 speak of the assurance 
of Christ. In tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, and so on, the Lord has made those who are justified in Christ more than conquerors, in that nothing will separate them from the love of God. There is no need to fear death from viral diseases. There is no need to fear the atrocities of world dictators. And there is no need to fear the evil of cultural movements. By the giving of his son, God has abolished all fear. He has abolished all anxiety. And he has abolished all apprehension. And he has abolished all suffering. It's as the hymn stipulates, The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea. And I am safe on this solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. I will not fear when darkness falls. His strength will help me scale these walls. I'll see the dawn of the rising sun. The Lord is my salvation. Who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save, faithful in love. My debt is paid and victory won. The Lord is is my salvation. The provision of God overcomes the poverty of man. Humanity exists in a constant state of poverty, not from lack of riches and wealth, not from an inability to have daily routine needs met, but from a lack of grace. In a state of sinfulness, every person has no capacity to appease the wrath of God. We certainly can't do it on our own efforts. And yet the Lord has given us a provision, his very own son, whom he permitted to endure the cross unjustly. Because he was the only one without sin. He was the only one whose sacrifice was sufficient. And so in this way, the provision of God overcame the poverty of humanity. And now humanity may live with Christ's justification and Christ's intercession and Christ's assurance. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Without this verse, our faith is faithless. Without this verse, all the promises of God are purposeless. And without this verse, our worship is worthless. On this passage stands everything else. On this passage stands the salvation of the condemned one. On this passage stands the justification of the repentant sinner. And on this passage stands the sanctification of the regenerate believer. The death, burial, and resurrection initiate a life of transformation. And from this truth, the believer then commences a life of transformation. We preach Christ crucified to see sinners and ourselves convicted of transgression and convinced of the need for transformation. If we abandon this truth, we abandon life eternal. There's a story of a church that upon its completion... They installed one final piece. It was a sign. And when they unveiled that sign, it said, We preach Christ crucified. Over the years, though, ivy began to grow, the ivy that had been planted in the garden, and creep up the wall. 
And as it worked its way up, it would eventually cover the sign, beginning first with the word crucified, so that the sign simply said, we preach Christ. Ignoring the fact of the need for his crucifixion and thus his burial and resurrection. Already you can probably see where this is going. Over time, the next word was covered up, so the sign eventually just said, we preach. When Christ crucified is abandoned, unfortunately, so is the need for preaching, though. Where there is no Christ crucified, there is no transformation, and there's no need for transformation. But by Christ crucified, the provision of God overcame the poverty of man giving those who have trusted in him by faith all that they need for sufficient transformation. True religion will always change or change your life because it is always based on truth. It is always based on the way and it is always based on the life. It is well said then, if your religion hasn't changed your life, then you need to change your religion. And so we come this morning to remember the Christ and him crucified and resurrected. Because the Christian's daily walk is defined by his willingness to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We remember this not just today, but every day. When we've remembered everything but forgotten Christ, we've remembered nothing. And so to quote a 19th century theologian, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are grateful for what today means. Father, we're grateful that we can read upon this text and see that indeed you spared nothing You gave your only son. Despite how abhorrent it may have been, and despite your love for him, Father, your sovereign plan went forward. And by it, we are justified. We are redeemed. We are liberated from sin and given the ability not only to obey, but you freed us to eternal life, an eternal life that is in your presence in heaven, Lord. And so, Father, we want to remember that, not just today. Lord, may we remember that every day. May we be convicted and convinced by it, and may it lead to transformed hearts and minds. Hearts and minds that are inclined towards you. Ones that testify to your goodness in this event. And so, Father, we thank you for this day, giving you great praise and honor. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.